0: Well, we're continuing this morning with our study through the pastoral letters. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 17 to 25, so we'll finish chapter 5 today. We are keeping in mind, of course, that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to give him guidance, to give him encouragement, to give him practical help as he serves in the pastoral role there in the church at Ephesus. Paul is very concerned about false doctrines that had taken hold of this church, and so one of the most important things that he continues to encourage Timothy to do is to faithfully preach the scriptures, to hold firm to sound doctrine, so that's a key theme. There's also a number of practical, more practical issues that Paul reinforced and is giving guidance to Timothy about. He wrote about the importance of, uh, of prayer, he wrote about the role of women in the church, he wrote about what was required of a person who would serve as, a de- as an elder, one who would serve as a deacon. He wrote about the proper focus of ministry to those who were the widows in the church. He also wrote to encourage Timothy in that difficult role that he had of really, really representing Paul to the Ephesian church. And so though he was a younger man, Paul encouraged him to be an example in his speech, his conduct, his love, his faith, and his purity. He needed to remember that God had given him a spiritual gift that enabled him to serve as pastor. He also needed to make sure that he not only called the church to a life of godliness, but that he was pursuing godliness in his own life, that what he taught matched up with the way he lived. When the verses that we're considering this morning, Paul comes back once again to the importance of the elders as the spiritual leaders in the church, and he gives guidance on how the church should Take care of them. He also gives guidance on the kind of life they needed to live. So let's look like at 1 Timothy 5 17 to 25. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. We can divide these verses into two main sections. First, we see what Paul says about the honor that was to be given to elders. And then second, Paul talks about the godly character that's required of elders. Now, before we get into the text, let me point out something that I think uh, is very important for our church as we go through these verses. Most of you know this, that I uh, will be retiring this year. That means as a church, we are and will be focusing on calling a new man who will serve as pastor of Two River's. That's the reason that I chose to preach through the pastoral letters. Someone told me that the main job of a pastor who is retiring is to prepare the way for the next guy as best as possible. So the pastoral letters remind us of what the local church is. We are the household of God. We are the church of the living God. We are the pillar and support of the truth. And in light of that description of who the church is, we see that the scripture gives specific guidance on what a church is to do, what a church is to focus on. And included in that is what is involved in choosing elders. Our existing elders in conjunction with our pastor committee are working to find a man that we can present to the congregation to consider. And then you'll have to think through those requirements of the elder yourself. There are, I, I, I come reminding you of those things because there are multiple things in the verses that we're considering today that are important for us as a congregation as we go through this endeavor. So, now I'm going to point out as many of them as, as as I can. So, with that in mind, our first point is this: the honor of elders. This is especially focused on in verses 17 and 18. He says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So they get, these verses give us a, a couple things about the responsibilities of elders in a summary fashion, and then how the church should honor those who serve as elders and in, in their particular congregation. So the first thing we see is this. The elders of the church have the responsibility before God of presiding over the church as shepherds, presiding over the church as shepherds. Paul speaks first in verse 17 of the elders who rule well. The word for rule that's used there speaks of a superintending or a presiding over as a protector, as a, as a guardian, as, as one who gives aid. Elsewhere, this is described as being a shepherd. The elders are supposed to give leadership to the sheep, to the congregation. For example, there's a need to be clear about what the purpose of our church is. There is a need to think through and put into practice the governing structure of the church, how we make decisions, and so forth. This would include the programs, the ministries that are a part of the church. It also includes guidance as we deal with various situations that come up. It would include being aware of and give guidance in uh, financial matters. It would include giving leadership and direction in areas related to church discipline. And these things are all done as as one, as those who are shepherds who seek to know the sheep and care for the sheep. So the elders know that we have a responsibility before God for the particular flock in which he has placed us as shepherds. So as we search, as we pray for the next pastor, one thing we are searching and praying for is a man who has a shepherd's heart. Now, I should also mention here that not everyone expresses that shepherding aspect of eldering in the same way, um, even among the elders we have, whether it's myself or whether it's Steve or whether it's Jeremiah. I mean, we, we have different ways of approaching people, different ways of, of thinking through things. And so, for the over, so the 30 years plus that I've been here, I mean, there are certain ways that I do it that fit comfortable with my personality. I say that to say this. Don't make the new guy fit and be exactly what I did or have done. I have no doubt he'll do it better. And I'm not saying that to be modest. I really believe that. <laughs> the second area of service that Paul speaks of is this the elders of the church have the responsibility before God of proclaiming the scriptures to the congregation. In verse 17, Paul speaks of those elders who work hard at preaching and teaching. We know from the characteristics of an elder that he gave back in chapter 3 that elders are to be men who are able to teach. It doesn't specify what kind of teaching. I mean, it, it can include anything from giving personal counsel, to leading, being able to lead small groups, teaching classes, preaching a sermon. The elders need to have the ability, therefore, because of their responsibilities, to make sure that the scriptures are consistently and rightly proclaimed in the church. So one thing that is an absolute requirement of the new pastor that we will call is that he would have a good understanding of the scriptures, that he would be clear about the fundamental doctrines of the faith, that he would know how to study and grow in his own understanding of the word of God. That he'll also know how to organize the truth of the word and explain it in such a way that those who are listening can understand what the passage is saying. And as I'm sure you're aware here, there are different ways of doing that. Not everybody preaches in the same way. In fact, one of the things that I struggled with in seminary was trying to preach a sermon in the way that the professors told me to preach sermons. Now, I learned a lot of things from those classes, very good professors. But I have to say, I do not see myself really as a typical preacher as far as the way I preach. I began to realize that my main spiritual gift is teaching. I am more of an organizer of scripture, of scripture passage. That's why the sermon notes you get are always in a clear outline form. That's the way I think. That's the way I put things together. So I'm really more of a teacher than a preacher. It took me a while to get comfortable with that because that's not what they tell you to do in seminary. Now, I say that also to help you see that many preachers do not present their sermons in the same way that I do, and that's fine. That's fine. Most of the pastors in churches, other churches, are really better preachers than I am. So don't expect the new pastor to preach his sermons in the exact same way that I do. He probably won't. The main thing is that he's able to present and explain the scripture in such a way that is faithful to the text and is something that can be understood by those who are listening. So the main role here of the elders and the local congregation then is to preside as shepherds and to see to it that the scriptures are consistently and clearly proclaimed to the church. And then Paul says, the congregation should respond to this leadership in a particular way. So point C is this, the congregation honors their elders with respect and with financial support for those with the primary responsibility of preaching and teaching. Look again at verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So saying that the elders are worthy of double honor is not speaking only of materials for it. He's not saying that preachers should make more money than anybody else. That is not what he's saying. Instead, what I think he's talking about is two aspects of honor. First is the idea that the elders are deserving, really, of the respect of the the members of the congregation because the role that God has placed the elders in is a key role in a local church. They serve as under shepherds serving in submission to the chief shepherd. So there's an aspect of respect. That's one of the aspects of honor. The other aspect of honor has has to do with what Paul says here. And he makes a distinction within the elders. Even though the responsibility of the elders is to be able to teach, it invariably works out that there are certain ones who end up doing most of the preaching. He speaks of those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And because of the work involved in what they do, they generally don't have the time to support themselves with another job so they become what we would be call a full-time pastor. These are deserving according to the scripture here of the honor that includes financial support. And the imagery of double honor speaks of generous support, which is something this church has done well, for which I'm very grateful and I'm sure you'll continue to do. This is something that was so important to Paul that he gives he uses two inspired authorities to confirm it. First, he quotes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, which says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. The argument here is what you might call from the lesser to the greater. The argument here is that you should be kind to your animals, especially those who are helping you with the harvest, by allowing them to eat when they are hungry, even while they're actually threshing, helping to thresh the grain. So the argument here is if you would do that for an animal who helps with material things, then surely you're going to generously support a man who helps with spiritual things. That's the, the way he's thinking here by using a verse like that, like speaking of oxen and threshing. Then secondly, Paul quotes Luke, who was quoting Jesus. In Luke 10, 7, Jesus says to his disciples, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Luke, of course, traveled with Paul for a time, at various times in his his ministry, so Paul would be familiar with Luke, what he was writing, a lot of things he wrote, so it would be very easy for Paul to have access to what Luke was writing in the Gospel of Luke. So in quoting these two inspired authorities, Paul clearly considered this to be a key point in how congregations were to honor their elders. Now, by the way, this is, I think, important to note here, it's interesting that Paul referred to an Old Testament law that's in the category of judicial or civil law, and he refers to that civil law to make a point about the New Testament church. Many people go out of their way to avoid applying the Old Testament civil law in our day in any way. Paul gives us an example of how to do it correctly. He didn't avoid it. He used it. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith speaks of this kind of issue, and he says this. It says this, To the Jews, God gave sundry or various judicial civil laws, which expired together with the state of that people, talking about the state of Israel, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So what what it's saying is, we are no longer under the literal reading of the civil laws like the Jews were, like the people of Israel were. But since, let me explain this. The civil law is an expression of God's moral law. The moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. The civil laws that were made for Israel to live by were specific applications of what the moral law said. So therefore, the civil laws have moral law at their, fund, at, their, at their foundation, at their base. So therefore, there are principles that are still relevant. The precise law is not exactly the same, but the principles are still relevant because they are connected to the moral law. And that's what general equity means we still are able to apply the principles, even though not the exact precise law. And as I said, Paul gives an example of doing that here. He's gonna do it again later too. He then moves to the honor of elders to this, from the honor of elders to this second point, the godly character required of elders. So in verse 17, Paul spoke of those elders who ruled well, those who worked hard at preaching and teaching but not every elder ruled well. Not every elder preached the scriptures faithfully. In fact, that was a big part of the problem at Ephesus. They weren't doing it. Some of them, anyway, were not doing it. So Paul deals with this problem from several angles in verses 19 to 24. The first thing he says, he says this in verse 19 do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So Paul's first directive on addressing the godly character of elders is this, the congregation must guard against believing every negative comment about an elder. Guard against believing every negative comment. This applies in every generation, it's scripture, but I'm sure Timothy was especially grateful to see it applied in his time. He was going to be addressing a number of men and women as well in the church about issues related to strange doctrines, things that needed to be talked about, hard conversations that needed to be had. The natural response for people in that circumstance would be to lash out against Timothy. So people in the church making false accusations against him was a very real possibility. Being a person of good character, of good reputation is one of the most important things in life. We value our reputations and we should. Here Paul is especially addressing the godly character of those who serve as elders. And the first thing he does is set up a guard against false accusations. False accusations can ruin a person's life, can ruin a person's life. Depending on what those accusations are, even if they're not true, they can follow them the rest of their days. And especially in our day, with instant access through things like various avenues of social media, accusations can be made and shared thousands, even millions of times before it's ever even known if the information is true or not. So to keep this from happening in the church, Paul once again uses the Old Testament civil law to give a standard for the church to use in receiving an accusation regarding an elder. He says an accusation must not be received except on the basis of two or three witnesses. This standard shows up multiple times in the law of Moses, and Paul applies it here in the times of the new covenant as well. People get nervous about this, I understand. Let me mention a couple things that I think can help here a little bit. I believe that we can consider a couple things maybe as a witness. For example, if there's video evidence of something, if there's DNA samples, if there's fingerprints, whatever, things like that. If there's not more than one person making an accusation, some things like that can I think can can be used as a second witness. But the main idea here is this, to be very cautious. There is no place for idle gossip, for malicious slander, not just regard to elders, but at large for anybody. That's, not, that, that's something we're supposed to always be careful about. But Paul has a lot more to say about this. Look at verses 20 and 21. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. So our next point is this. The congregation must solemnly hold the elders accountable when they persist in sin by rebuking them publicly. So yes, we need to be cautious about making false accusations. But... We must also take sin very seriously. He speaks in verse 20 of those who continue in sin. The word used here implies more than an occasional act of transgression. It speaks instead of a person giving over to sin in a continual way. It can even refer to someone who is known because of certain sinful traits in their life. And it speaks here of one who has ignored private rebukes and cautions that he received from fellow believers. Now, this is what this ties in with what Jesus told the church to do with all members when sin issues arise. He gave several steps in Matthew 18. I'll just kind of review basically here. First, the concerned believer would go to one who was involved in sin, or that he thought looked like was involved in sin, and have and on a private level and exhaust every means possible to bring a correction. Secondly, if the one who is being warned will not repent, then the concerned believers will take one or two other people with him to continue to try to bring correction. And again, also this is on more of a private type level. Third, if this doesn't work, the issue should be taken to the elders. Make sure the church church elders are aware of it. If they won't listen to the elders, then it's taken to the church. If they won't listen to the church, then they are removed from membership because they're acting as if they're not a believer. Anybody with that number of appeals for something and they will not change, there's something, there's something seriously wrong there. But now in the case of one who is an elder, if he doesn't listen to those who are talking with him privately, then they need to rebuke him before the church. In other words, the elder doesn't get as many chances as the other believers. (laughs) That's because of the position of being the shepherds of the church of Christ. Paul says to do it in such a way, do this so that all who hear of it will be fearful of sinning. In other words, it's going to serve as a sobering warning for everybody who is a part of the congregation and they hear what has taken place. Then Paul highlights again what a serious thing this is. He's holding Timothy accountable to make sure this is done the way Paul has explained it. And he he says in verse 21, this is a solemn charge. It's almost like Paul is putting Timothy under an oath in this issue. And then to further heighten the importance of this difficult assignment, Paul points out that he's making this charge in the presence of God, I mean, our creator the sovereign Lord, in the presence of Christ, who is our Savior, who is the head of the church, and he's making the charge, he says, in the presence of God's chosen angels. In other words, not the fallen angels, the chosen angels, the holy angels. They are God's special messengers. The angels marvel at all the Lord does in and through his church. So he says, these things highlight how serious this issue is. And then Paul adds these things must not be done in a spirit of partiality. There should be no favoritism. One of the tragic things, and this is the kind of thing you can find all kinds of articles on, unfortunately. One of the tragic things that has happened in the church, and I'm using church in a big picture type situation here, for generations, for centuries, is that ministers who have been guilty of serious sins, some of which are even crimes, have never been held accountable for those things. They may, depending on the church structure, they just may, may just be moved to another location. It could be that they are allowed to resign and then able to go to another church. The other church is not aware of what happened because their previous church doesn't tell them. There are so many awful, awful stories about that. Paul is making sure Timothy understands that is not an option. That is not an option, and it's still not an option. Paul then continues on speaking of the call of the elders to godly living. Look at verse 22. Here we see that serving as an elder is a high calling. Therefore, congregations must be very careful when they set a man apart to do this ministry. When Paul says, do not lay hands upon anyone uh, hastily, that's what he says in verse 22 there, he's talking about what is sometimes called ordination. It's when a man is set apart to the pastoral ministry by his church, really to serve as an elder in that particular church. And in most cases, of course, the church is gonna know this man pretty well, before he's ever set apart to this ministry as an elder. They would have a chance to see the genuineness of his conversion. They'd have a chance to see the kind of character his life has made up, the kind of things that are laid out in 1 Timothy 3. They would have a chance to know of his faithfulness to the word of God and his understanding of the basic doctrines of the faith. And this is good, to be aware of those things. And Paul warns against a man being brought in as an elder too soon or one who does not really measure up to those qualifications, there's a danger that if he's not ready, it could actually encourage and cause him to fall into temptation and wrong teachings, which had apparently already happened in the Ephesian church. This is something that's going to be a challenge for us to consider as a church ourselves. The man that we'll be bringing in for the church to consider as our next full-time pastor will be a person that we, do not, that we do not know well, at least initially. So the elders will need to take time to ask questions, lots of questions. The pastor committee will need to task more important questions and get a feel for the kind of person he is, what he believes, and so forth. When the man is presented to the church body as a whole, you'll have opportunity to ask questions and get, and get to know him as best, as best we can. And one thing we're going to have to rely on is recommendations from people that we know well, pe- people who know him well, and people that we feel like we can trust. And that's actually one of the applications that Martin Luther made from this particular verse. That quote is on your outline. He says, Trust no one easily in regard to his knowledge, learning, or piety. There, too, insist on witnesses... Who consistently speak of his integrity and his circumstances." That's going to be a big part of our process as well. Then in verse 24 and 25, Paul acknowledges something that might feel kind of surprising, but when you think about the whole context, it's not. He's pointing out this is not a foolproof process. Look at verse 24. He says, the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. So here, Paul says this, the reality is that some sins are plain to see, while others are not evident at first. We all know this. I mean, it applies to all people, not just those pursuing ministry. There are some sins that are very public. I mean, you can see them in the way in the person's speech, I mean, kind of the, how they talk, how they interact with people. You can see it in their conduct. There are certain things that are just, that's not good. I mean, those, those, those things are wrong. Now, we all need to be aware of those things, but those kind of things would keep, some, would keep the church from offering ordination to someone who has those kind of regular type sins that are so obvious, And then when he says, they go before them to judgment, I think he's speaking there of the judgment that the people would make that this person should not be an elder. That's the judgment I think he has in mind there. But not all sins are like that. They may be the kinds of things that are not obvious at first. It will take time for it to be seen in any public way. I think Paul is saying here that you will not be able to anticipate everything that might happen when considering calling someone as an elder. No matter what you do, there are going to be things at times that are going to take us by surprise. Wasn't expecting that. That's reality. That's just reality. And Paul is saying, that's reality. On the other hand, the next point is also true. Good works are also plain to see, and even those that are more private will ultimately be seen as well. Verse 25, likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So we can readily see good fruit in people's lives, and how encouraging that is when we see good fruit. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus For good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good, God-honoring works are natural to those who have been born again. They are natural to those who, by God's grace, have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we rejoice in this, in these good works that are so common among believers. But even here, There are godly works that are a part of a believer's life that are not evident to a lot of people, to most people maybe. There are things that go on in their time alone with the Lord. There are things that God is working on in their hearts that are not always clear, oftentimes are not clear to other people. But these two, in a good way, will one day become evident. Sometimes we see people act in godly ways and we're amazed at what we see in a good way. God grants them special grace to endure a really hard trial that you don't even know it was there until the trial came. God grants them special courage to stand against sin in some way. God grants them the kind of just God-exalting love that leads them to minister to other people in just some remarkable ways that you see them loving enemies, for example. you think, where is that even coming from? In God's time, these things too will be seen. So Paul's saying, don't just think, well, there's all kinds of bad stuff there. He said, there's all kinds of good stuff there. If they're a true believer, there's all kinds of good stuff there more than you are going to be able to see. But one day, it'll be shown, little by little, in God's time. So the application, I think, here is this. Yes, we must be careful when setting aside a person for the ministry, as an elder, as a pastor, but we also realize it's not a perfect process. On one hand, some sinful ways are hidden from view. On the other hand, God ordains good deeds that go beyond our expectation. So we do the best we can, we commit ourselves to the Lord to oversee the whole process. There's one final word that Paul has to say about the godly character required of elders, point D. The temptation to sin is something that elders and all believers must take very seriously. Going back to the end of verse 22, Paul ends this exhortation um, about don't lay your hands on someone too quickly and that kind of thing. He ends that exhortation by saying, keep yourself free from sin. I know we're talking about other people here that you are in bringing, but keep yourself free from sin. This consistent with what Paul has said elsewhere in this letter. He wants to make sure Timothy is living in a consistent way with what he says he believes and with what he teaches. That's the same thing that applies to every one of us. Every one of us have that same need. It's so easy to say one thing, to express our faith in one thing, and to live and act in a way that's opposite of what we said. So we have to constantly remember that we are responsible before God to keep ourselves free from sin by the power of the Spirit, but to keep ourselves free from sin. But Paul was especially making an application to Timothy and other elders here. Curtis Vaughan summed up the idea this way, this is on your outline. If one was to have freedom to point out sins in others, he must be free from these sins himself. <laughs> Don't be hypocritical in what you're noticing in somebody else when the same thing is present in your own life to some degree. Then Paul takes the opportunity to point out something about Timothy, that he felt Timothy should change. (laughs) Right here in the scripture, for everybody to read for thousands of years. Verse 23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. This seems out of place. I mean... It's like it's just kind of stuck in there. (laughs) But I think there's a good possibility here that Paul is making an application to Timothy of something that he spoke of earlier in chapter 4. There in chapter 4, Paul was warning about teachers who were uh, forbidding marriage and advocating abstaining from certain foods as a way of being holy. Paul says, you're missing the point. You're missing the point when you do that. First Timothy four, three through five, speaking of men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has great has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Rejecting God's good gifts is not the path to godliness. He says, receive with thanksgiving. It seems that Timothy may have been doing that, I would say, unawares. Maybe that that actually applied to him in some way. He may well have been completely abstaining from wine and only drinking water because he thought it made him more holy just by virtue of doing that. Paul says, in Timothy's case, he's actually saying, Actually, Timothy, a little wine could be beneficial to you. Of course, they didn't have the same understanding of medicines and things like that that we do. So the main treatment for stomach problems at that time was drinking a little wine. Paul recommends that to Timothy. Now, there's something else I think to take note of here. Paul was very, was clearly obvious was clearly aware of Timothy's stomach problems. He actually describes them as frequent ailments, things that happened a lot. Why didn't Paul pray for Timothy to be healed? I mean, he was an apostle. The Lord had certainly used many, used Paul in many miraculous ways to see people healed. There's a number of accounts of them in the book of Acts. But here we see Paul, the apostle, not expecting every sickness to be healed. You would think especially you'd pray for Timothy, I mean. But instead he encourages taking advantage of medications or procedures that could help address physical problems. So there is clearly a place for that. Okay, so we think about this whole passage This is just another clear example to us of how much Paul loved the local church. And in this case, he shows us by his emphasis on the elders and their relationship with the congregation of the church. Paul knew that it was the church that God used to change people's lives as they respond to faith in Jesus Christ. God used the church to help people grow, to help the members grow in godliness. It's the gathered church in which God is praised and exalted as we, as we worship together. It's in the church that the word of God is taught and believed and applied. God uses the church to be a witness to the world. So, it's both a privilege and a great responsibility for us to be God's church in the world. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you just again for practical aspects of your scripture, and these especially relate to your church, and they relate and apply very specifically to our church in the season that we're in. So i want to thank you for your, for your word. Lord, remind us, this isn't just something to guide us through, through this particular season in our life as a church, but there are principles here that apply to every believer no matter what season of life we're in. Lord, help us all to be cautious of sin in our life. Help us all to be careful about gossip, malicious slander. Lord, just ask that you would continue just to, to work in our hearts. I want to thank you. One of the things that's so encouraging about these, about these verses is that we are so grateful when we see good works. But Lord, I thank you that he's, Paul is saying God is doing things in your heart that are going to show forth in the days to come, and you may not even be aware that they're there. Thank you for the good things that you are working in our lives. I just thank you for that encouragement. Lord, we do thank you also for the fact that all this is tied into the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and we are his people. We are his church. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, I would invite you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. prayer like this will be a way to start Lord, I realize that I have sin in my life. I do have sin in my life. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world for people like me. So I receive Jesus as my Savior. I receive Jesus as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is name.